Warning, the following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, most unthinkable, and most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. On today's episode of The Jury Room, we'll be talking about one of the most sadistic serial killers of the 1970s. A killer so sick, so disturbed, and so evil, he actually slaughtered his own mother and grandparents. This is Ed Kemper. I am an American, and I killed Americans. I am a human being, and I killed human beings, and I did it in my society. In late August... 1964. It was a typically hot day in North Fork, California. 15-year-old Edmund Emil Kemper III, or Ed, was living with his grandparents on their 17-acre ranch. His 66-year-old grandmother, Maud, sat at the kitchen table, finishing up a children's book that she had been working tirelessly on. Ed and Maud got into an argument like they often did. Maud had a tendency to push Ed around, and Ed was resentful of having been sent to live with her. This argument, though, Ed was determined to win. Red faced and shaking with anger, the 15-year-old marched off and returned with the hunting rifle his grandfather had gifted him. Ed had been known to shoot birds and other small animals that made their way onto the family ranch. So when Maud saw Ed armed with the rifle, she warned him not to shoot the birds. Ed shot his grandmother in the head. Then, in a fit of rage, he shot her twice more in the back. Not long after the killings, Ed's grandfather arrived home from grocery shopping. Afraid of what his grandfather might do when he discovered his wife's bloody body, Ed shot him dead too, right in the driveway. Why would this 15-year-old kid perform such a grisly, unthinkable act on his very own grandparents? Well, according to Ed, he just wanted to see what it felt like to kill grandma. There's long been a debate about whether serial killers are born that way, or if their cruel habits are created by their upbringings or other circumstances out of their control. For notorious serial killer Ed Kemper, it may very well have been both. Born in Burbank, California on December 18, 1948, young Ed was a middle child and the only son of the Kemper family. He was a large child from the very beginning. At birth, he was 13 pounds and continued to grow until he reached an incredible height of 6 feet 9 inches. He towered over those around him, intimidating others in his size alone. Even as a child, Ed began to exhibit monstrous behavior. He often stole his little sister Alan's dolls and performed strange and gruesome rituals with them. He would pop off their heads and hands and push their naked bodies together, as if imitating sexual acts. Other favorite games of the elementary-aged boy were gas chamber and electric chair. Ed would have his sisters tie him up and pretend to hit a button or flip a switch. When they did, Ed would tumble from their chair and pretend to convulse until he fell to the ground, playing dead. It just wasn't dolls and imaginary games that little Ed Kemper set his attention on. He tortured and killed animals with the regularity another child might watch cartoons. At the age of 10, he buried his pet cat alive. After leaving it under the ground long enough to suffocate, he dug it up and chopped off its head. When he 
mounted the head on the spike and carried it around like a prize. In interviews later, Ed said that he felt proud how well he lied to his family when they questioned him about the cat's whereabouts. At 13, he killed another family cat because he thought it spent too much time with his sister and not enough time with him. Angered that the cat might prefer his sister to him, he chopped him up and kept chunks of the feline in his closet, most likely as a trophy. When Ed developed a small crush on a teacher at school, his older sister Susan asked him if he wanted to kiss her. Ed replied that the only way he could kiss his teacher was if he killed her first. When Ed was eight, he would sneak out of the house with a bayonet he stole from his father and walk to his teacher's house. He would stand under her window and watch her, weapon in hand. As a child, Ed may have had a hunger for darkness and death, but his mother and siblings also contributed to Ed's deep unhappiness. Afraid of his abusive mother, Ed was closest to his father, who he admired deeply and felt safest with. But when Ed was just nine years old, his parents announced that they would be getting a divorce, and he would be moving across the country with his mother to Helena, Montana. This crushed Ed who wanted to be as far away from his neurotic, bullying, alcoholic mother as possible. Later in life, Ed would blame his mother, Clarnell Kemper, for the murderous rage that defined his entire life. Ed's father, a World War II veteran, once said that suicide missions in wartime and later atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with Clarnell. As a child, Ed's mother picked on him relentlessly. She constantly berated him for being no good. She told him he would amount to nothing. As a small child, she reminded him often that he was unwanted and unloved and would remain so forever, according to Clarnell. No woman would ever love weird Ed Kemper. Name-calling was a favorite of Clarnell's, who teased Ed for his size and referred to him as a real weirdo. By the time Ed turned 10, Clarnell had begun locking the fifth grader in the basement, forcing him to sleep in the dark, cold, isolated space. Paranoid that the unhappy boy might molest or hurt his sisters, she convinced the entire family that young Ed was better off locked away. Clarnell excused her sick behavior towards the child by explaining that if she were to show her son affection, that love would turn him gay. It is believed that the abusive, alcoholic woman suffered from borderline personality disorder. Ed's mother wasn't the only family member who acted monstrously towards the young child. Ed's older sister Susan, fueled by a fierce rage of her own, twice tried to murder her little brother. Once, she attempted to push him in front of a train. Another time, she threw him into a swimming pool, where he thrashed helplessly until nearly succumbing to his death beneath the watery trap. In a courtroom decades later, Ed would claim that the first daydream he remembered before the gas chamber game and beheadings of his little sister's dolls was that his mother and father would be loving together and caring for their children. Unfortunately, this desire would never be more than a fantasy. By the time Ed turned 14, he could no longer bear the cruelty his mother and sister showed him. Outraged and exhausted, he fled his Montana home and headed back to California in search of the only person who had ever shown him love, his father, Edmund Emil Kemper II. When Ed arrived on his father's doorstep in Van Nuys, California, a suburb of Los Angeles, Ed had not seen or heard from his father in years. Expecting a loving reunion, the teenager was met instead with the ambivalence that deepened his agony. Ed discovered that his father had remarried and fathered another child. The family of three seemed to be thriving without him. Ed stayed only a short time with his father before he was kicked to the curb and sent to live with his grandparents. It felt to Ed that his mother may have been right all along. He was unwanted and unloved, even by the father he looked up to. 
When Ed moved in with his grandparents, Maud and Edmund Kemper I, he was embittered and brokenhearted. He fought incessantly with his father's parents, who he described to be senile and cold. He felt that his grandmother emasculated him, bossing him around and criticizing him. Ed's grandfather gave the large boy a rifle in an effort to bond with him, but Ed used the present to kill birds and other small animals he encountered on the sprawling ranch. Horrified by Ed's dark nature, his grandfather took the rifle and forbade Ed from using it ever again. This only exacerbated Ed's resentment towards his grandparents, and he began to grow angrier with them every day. With every criticism, every argument, and every nag, Ed inched closer and closer to exploding. He had been with his grandparents less than a year when the rage drove him to killing them. After he shot his grandmother in the head, he shot her two more times, even though she was already dead. Some sources say that he even stabbed the old woman, taking years of anguish, terror, and despair out with a knife in his grandma's back, adrenaline pumping through his veins. Ed pulled the final trigger on his grandfather in the driveway, and one gruesome afternoon, a killer was born. Most young people are programmed to call their mothers in time of distress. If their car breaks down on the side of the road, or they need advice on a relationship problem they're having, they know to call mom. Operator. Ed, in spite of suffering a toxic, abusive relationship with his mother, was no different. Ed called his mother immediately after slaughtering his grandparents. Clarnell encouraged Ed to call the police and turn himself in. He did, and so he did so and was consequently arrested. It was to the police following his arrest that he explained coolly, I just wanted to know what it felt like to kill grandma. These first critical murders were born from a place of true and terrible malice. A teenage boy rejected by his parents, channeled his pain through acts of violence. Finally, he could take it out on humans instead of animals. Finally, he could be the dominant one. For Ed, the double murder of his grandparents was built from the fury that he felt from his parents and the lack of power he had over them. Ed's cavalier attitude toward the cold-blooded murder shocked and horrified the courtroom. Court psychiatrists deemed that the 15-year-old suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. He was taken right away to Atascadero State Hospital in Central California, a maximum security mental hospital for the criminally insane. Ed stayed at the Minta facility for five years where he found for the first time a community that didn't look down on him. The doctors in charge of Ed's care felt like he had been misdiagnosed at trial. Hospital staffers were impressed with Ed's drive and introspection. One psychiatrist even described the teenage killer as a very good worker, which was not typical of a sociopath. Ed was granted the opportunity to work alongside the psychiatrist. He underwent leadership training with the United States Junior Chamber and developed a new series of psychiatric tests for patients. During his incarceration at the hospital, IQ tests revealed that Ed Kemper was a genius. His first test measured his IQ at an astounding 136, while the second gave an even more remarkable result of 145. Doctors officially declared that he was misdiagnosed and diagnosed him with personality trait disturbance paired with passive-aggressive tendencies. Later, Ed would attribute his time at Atascadero as helping him to be a more successful murderer. 
He said that his exclusive and intimate access to psychiatric testing gave him a complex understanding of how the system functioned. He was able to use his deep knowledge to manipulate the doctors in charge of his care. The hard-working, respectable prisoner that they believed to be treating was actually a vicious, calculated monster who deceived them into lessening his diagnosis and rewarding him for model behavior. Ed picked up a great deal of sickening advice from sex offenders at only 16. Ed was taught by his fellow inmates to murder any woman he rapes. That was the only guaranteed way to ensure that she, she would never tell. On Ed's 21st birthday in 1969, after only serving five years for the heartless murder of his grandparents, Ed was free. Psychiatrists warned that Ed should not be placed in the care of his mother, for the toxicity of their relationship might lead Ed to kill again, but the police released him back to her anyway. Larnell, who had remarried and divorced since Ed's incarceration, had a new last name, Standberg, and a new address in Santa Cruz, California. Her harmful behavior, however, remained exactly the same. During Ed's stay with his mother, the two engaged in awful, raging fights that would go on for days and disturb the neighbors. These fights tortured Ed, who was enraged and devastated by his tragic relationship with Clarnell. According to Ed, my mother and I started right in on these horrendous battles. Just horrible battles, violent and vicious. I've never been in such vicious verbal battle with anyone. It would go to fists with the man, but this was my mother, and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. She insisted on it, just over stupid things. I remember one roof raiser was over whether I should have my teeth cleaned. In spite of his growing struggles with his mother, Ed continuously impressed and won over those around him. Ed was often visited by court-ordered probation officers and psychiatrists, and during their stays, he would make sure to be on his best possible behavior. His final report from visiting psychiatrists described Ed as a very well-adjusted young man who had the initiative, intelligence, and who was free of psychiatric illness. The glowing report recommended that Ed's criminal records be expunged so that he could have a future free of any obstacles that his murderous past might place before him. During this time, Ed enrolled in a local community college. Motivated by dreams of becoming a state trooper, this dream would be yet another crushing disappointment for Kemper, who was rejected from the Santa Cruz Police Department because of his abnormally large size at 6 foot 9 inches, weighing nearly 300 pounds. Even still, he became close with the officers on the force, who nicknamed Kemper Big Ed and spent evenings with him drinking and chatting at the jury room, a local bar frequented by police. After landing a job with the State of California Division of Highways, Ed saved enough money to finally leave his mother's house and move to Alameda, California, about an hour and a half away from Santa Cruz. Even at the sizable distance, Ed still couldn't escape his mother's unending wrath Clarnell would show up at Ed's house unannounced, disturbing Ed's roommate and interrupting any plans Ed might have. Clarnell also called him daily, nagging and picking fights. Ed struggled financially and was forced to stay with his mother from time to time, even after the move. During a visit to his mother's, Ed met and fell in love with the woman at a Santa Cruz beach. The woman whose name has never been released to the public became engaged to Ed in 1973. She remained with him until he was arrested for serial killing, just four years after his release from the mental hospital. 
Less than a year after finding employment at the Division of Highways, Ed was cruising on a motorcycle when he was struck and hurt by an oncoming car. His arm suffered severe injuries and Ed decided to sue for damages. He won $15,000 in the lawsuit, an equivalent of $90,000 in 2019, and used his new fortune to purchase a brand new car, a 1969 Ford Galaxy. The purchase of the new car marked the newfound freedom for Ed, a freedom that innocent and unsuspecting young women would pay the ultimate price for. In the early 1970s, hitchhiking was a popular method of transportation for young men and women. Everything that we know about the risks of hitchhiking today, from theft to kidnappings to rape, we learned from the experiences of these trusting, optimistic flower children, who went from happy-go-lucky teenagers to victims in a single car ride. As Ed cruised around town, he saw an opportunity. His Ford Galaxy gave him the confidence, freedom, and privacy he needed to begin picking up hitchhiking women. More of his settlement money, Ed purchased a gun, sharp knives, handcuffs, plastic bags, and blankets. He stored them in his Ford and got to work. Kemper claims to have picked up 150 hitchhikers before he started feeling the zaples, his nickname for the homicidal sexual fantasies that would possess him. When he was asked in an interview what was going through his mind when he picked up these vulnerable women, he answered, one side of me says, wow, what an attractive chick. I'd like to talk to her, date her. The other side of me says, I wonder how her head would look on a stick. With an instinct for hunting and overwhelming urge to fulfill his fantasies, Ed lost all sense of self-control. According to Ed, it was an urge, a strong urge. The longer I let it go, the stronger it got, to where I was taking risks to go out and kill people, risks that normally, according to my little rules of operation, I wouldn't take because they could lead to arrest. Maybe Ed was unable to keep his parents together. Maybe he couldn't be a state trooper. Maybe he hadn't built up the courage to kill his mother yet, but he did have the power to finally realize one hungry, all-consuming fantasy. He could be a haunter, and the threat of arrest was overshadowed by how good, fulfilling that craving would be. Following intense heated arguments with Clarnell, Ed would drive around town in a fit of rage, itching to let off steam. It was in these highly emotional, private moments that Ed would find and capture his victims. In the span of only 11 months, between May of 1972 and April of 1973, Ed mercilessly killed and tortured eight victims, included at long last his own mother. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the very first episode of the Jury Room Podcast, everybody. Thanks for taking the time out to digest this content that we have for you today. I know today is going to be a little bit of a doozy, uh, but what we haven't planned in the future is probably going to be even worse. So let's just face it, that reality is a lot scarier than the movies. So with that being said, I found a couple of news articles that I wanted to share with you guys this week. Something that Probably a lot of people have a lot of different feelings on. So the first headline that I found that I felt was very interesting to share with everybody, and obviously without this being said, but I'll say it anyways, everybody is innocent until proven guilty. So I am in no way, shape, or form saying that this defendant is guilty, but you're probably all in the same boat that I am and probably wish this motherfucker would burn. So... With that being said, the headline reads, R. Kelly was beaten in jail while no one raised a finger. His attorney says, well, Mr. R. Kelly, sounds like you kind of got what you deserve, bud. So what are your thoughts? What do you feel? 
Have you guys watched that Surviving R. Kelly documentary on Netflix? It's horrendous. It really is. He was a fucking monster, man. So that's that's the first headline I wanted to share with you guys. I know being that this is a true crime podcast, there's obviously a lot of negativity, so I'm always going to share at least something positive. So with that being said, the second headline that I found that I feel like needs more attention brought to it, or at least more people in the world like this guy, the headline reads as follows. Locksmith helps saves Utah woman who wrote 911 on her hand in a silent plea for help. So basically this woman was being held against her will, and they were getting the locks changed on their their house, and she was smart enough to go ahead and write, you know, a message on her hand. Showed Greg, and it was great. You know, that's one thing, that's one good thing about the masks is he couldn't, you know, nobody could see his reaction, right? Couldn't smile, couldn't nothing. So, uh, but Greg was able to call the police and, you know, potentially save this woman's life. So, Greg, you are a badass, and thank you for saving this woman's life. Here at the jury room, I don't want it to just be a podcast. I want it to be a community where we support each other and build each other up. Whether that be you as the listener or another podcast, another blog writer, screenwriters. I mean, just we need more support in this world. It would be a lot better place. So with that being said, I'm going to let my friends over at the Trashy Trashy Podcast tell you about their stories. Hi, I'm Erica. And I'm Cassandra. And we're the hosts of Trashy Trashy. We're a podcast filled with trashy news stories and garbage people. Did you leave the scene of an accident to go tanning? Do you refer to wearing the strap down on your Crocs as sports mode? Have you ordered Domino's online before they even open in the morning? Are you switching the same AAA batteries from your TV remote to your vibrator instead of just buying more batteries? Or are you normal? Check us out wherever you download podcasts. And as always, anything... And everything that I discuss will be in the description. Uh, there will be links to everybody's social media, um, news articles, whatever the case is. There will be links down below. Make sure you go and check them out. The next person I want to show some support to is Jared Adams. He's a screenwriter out of the UK. He runs a true crime blog post, and it's fantastic. He covers a lot of different things, a lot of different cases that I've never even heard of. So... Make sure you go check him out, show him some love, tell him I sent you. I hope we get a chance to work together in the future. So, Jared, thank you. Next is something that I want to highlight, and this is something that I will be discussing every single episode because I feel like it needs more attention than what it gets. So, with that being said, I'd like to cover a missing person. Now, I am going to link to a form down below if you have a missing person that you want to cover or you want me to cover or that you want to come on you know and talk about bring some awareness to their case fill out that form share your contact information i'll get in touch and bring you on but today we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna cover a missing person out of la habra california today's missing person is aurora rodriguez sembrano she went missing on october 13th 2020 she's 14 years old five foot two 120 pounds, dirty blonde hair, greenish brownish hair. She may be wearing black and white Vans or Adidas. The class kids case number is going to be 2D10153, or you can call the Lahambra Police Department at 562-383-4300, or class kids at 855-733-5575. 
855-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-
on it broke up the monotony, I guess, of what we were doing. Didn't have a lot of toys to play with. Uh, we got bored with those pretty quickly. So we looked for things to do. You roll up in the rug and, and you try to get out, and the other two would leave the room, and we see who could get out fastest. You know, you try to work your way out sideways or scoot out the end of it or whatever. And uh, it went from that to being tied in this overstuffed chair with a cord or something or, or pieces of sheet or sash or something. And uh, it went through this process. I guess we're, that's back when, in 1960 when uh, Carol Chessman was executed. What were those fantasies? What were they? Yes. Um, possessing the severed heads of women. Men didn't turn me on. That wasn't very, I couldn't appreciate the appearances of a guy. That when I was young, I was about eight or nine years old, I went to a, this little, come on, it was like at a record store or something, and they had this crowd of kids there, and there was a magic show. And this guy, you've probably seen it, the fake guillotine, hand-pressed, and they put the potato there, and someone puts their neck in the, uh, in the brace, and they slam this thing down, and the potato down below chops in two, but the person's head doesn't fall off, right? And everybody gets very fascinated by that. Oh, my God. And then when he puts the blade in place and he pushes it down, it goes through that neck hole, but it never chops anybody's head off. Okay, so he wanted a volunteer out of the, I'm not standing in this crowd watching this show, and he wanted a volunteer out of the audience, and some quite beautiful little 16-year-old girl gets up there, and this big laugh, and you're all giddy and stuff, and I started getting caught up in this. I said, wow. Right at that moment, I departed reality, because logically, I should have been able to ascertain that that could not happen. You're not going to get away with chopping somebody's head off in the middle of, uh, <laughs> in the middle of Helena, Montana, the capital city. Um, but the concept of it was so raw and it was titillating, I says, wow, gee, i got to watch this. And he had her girlfriend come over and put her hands there to catch her head so it wouldn't fall in the basket, you know. And he was making jokes about this. I got caught up in this, this, um, this interplay between normal concerns. You don't want to get a bump on her head. Well, hey, if you're chopping her head off, it doesn't matter, right? And this is catching in my mind somehow, and I'm saying, wow. Uh, the first time, okay, uh, the two girls were killed around 6 p.m. By 11 the next morning, they are both completely gone out of my life, physically, all right? That's not even 24 hours. The third murder, which is the second incident, okay, uh, I'm in the middle of trying to get my record sealed, right? Thursday night, I killed her. I took off Friday. I didn't go to work. I called in sick, took CTO, all right? Dismembered her body got rid of her body but kept her head in her hands because they're identifiable. They're highly identifiable. I kept those at the apartment, okay? That Friday night, I, uh, Thursday night I took her. Friday, uh, Friday morning she was dismembered. Friday night she was disposed of, right? Saturday morning I left, right? And I didn't have, I wasn't satisfied that I, I took the head along in the hands, but I didn't, I couldn't put them someplace that I would, could be sure they wouldn't be dug up by an animal or just be somewhere. It was, it's scary going out there trying to bury somebody or dispose of body parts in a community or out in the, even in the boonies where you don't know where you're at and who can come up at any moment. I had some real close calls there where people had come out of nowhere. And if they, if a body's found and they remember this beige looking car sitting there the night, that's evidence. So it was very, very hard to get rid of this stuff. So anyway, Saturday morning, I went to see the psychiatrist in Fresno. Saturday afternoon, I saw the other one. 
Saturday evening, I'm with my fiance and her family over in Turlock. Sunday night, I come back to my apartment. Well, Mr. Ed Kemper, thanks for those words. As far as everybody else, enjoy the second half of the show. And I want to leave you with this note. The same boiling water that softens the potato hardens the egg. It's what you're made of, not the circumstances. Unknown. On May 7th, 1972, Ed Kemper knew one thing was for certain. The first good-looking girl I see tonight is going to die. He ended up picking up two girls, 18-year-old students from Fresno State University, Marianne Pesk and Anita Luchessa, were hoping to find a ride from FSU to Stanford. When Ed pulled over, the unsuspecting teens were grateful for his generosity. Ed's job at the highway division had taught him the ins and outs of the California roads, and he knew exactly where to to take them. Under the false pretense of changing directions for a faster route, an hour into the dark night drive, the girls handcuffed, Ed pulled over to a secluded wooded area where he knew no one could bear witness to his crimes. During the drive, Ed found himself particularly attracted to Pesk, apparently struck by her personality and her looks. When he was handcuffing her, his hand brushed against her breast, and Ed flushed, apologizing out of embarrassment. He had no intention of killing them at first. He planned to rape them and abandon them in the woods, thinking that would be enough to satisfy his urge. It wasn't. When they arrived in the woods, Ed stuffed Luchessa in the trunk and pulled a plastic bag over Pesk's head. He tied a bathrobe belt around the 18-year-old's neck and tugged, but the belt snapped. Pesk bit through the plastic bag in an effort to escape, but she was no match for the huge, terrifying monster before her. Ed stabbed her in the back, panicking, but it wasn't enough to end the poor girl's life. Ed said he stabbed her all over her back, she turned around, and I stabbed her through the heart, but her breasts were there. Her breasts actually deflected me. I couldn't see myself stabbing a young woman in the breasts. That's embarrassing. Instead, he slit her throat. With Pesk out of the way, Ed opened his trunk and dragged out Luchessa. He stabbed her in the eyes, the heart, the forearms, and the throat over and over again, until she finally went limp, bloody and lifeless in her killer's wide-stretching arms. Ed didn't kill his mom this time. Instead, he drove the girl's bodies back to his apartment, where he knew his roommate would not be home. For Ed, it was time to play. Ed took Polaroids of the corpses before and after cutting them open and pulling out various organs. A morbid curiosity intermixed with an unwavering and sickening sexual desire. Finally, he cut off their heads. Remembering his time with their bodies, Ed explained, there was actually a sexual thrill. You hear that little pop and pull their heads off and hold their heads up by their hair, whipping their heads off, their bodies sitting there. That'd get me off. Still, Ed denied over engaging in sexual acts with Pesk and Luchessa's dead bodies, but some believe that he did engage in necrophilia. It's known for certain though that once Ed finished dissecting the women, he simply watched them, amazed that the little boy who used to stand under his teacher's window with a bayonet grew up to be an actual killer. I would sit there looking at the heads on an overstuffed chair, tripping on them on my bed. One of them somehow becomes unsettled, comes rolling down the chair, very grisly, tumbling down the chair, rolls across the cushion and hits the rug. Bonk. Ed, who had worked hard to maintain his reputation as the responsible and model man he had convinced 
psychiatrist he was years earlier, he was more worried about disturbing his neighbors than about the actual carnage he had just committed. Ed said about that night, the neighbors downstairs hates my guts. I'm always making noise late at night. He gets a broom and wax on the ceiling. Buddy, I say, I'm sorry for that. I dropped my head. Sorry. That helped me out of the depression. I would trip on that. The slaying seemed to help boost his mood also. When he finished with playtime, Ed stuffed and chopped up the headless bodies into plastic bags and buried them deep into the hills of Santa Cruz. He buried their body parts all over the place, torsos in one location, hands in another, careful not to keep too much of the body together. He knew that if one body part was found alone, it would probably not be enough to identify a victim. Creepily, Ed attributed his knowledge of burial techniques to his time in the Boy Scouts. He kept the head of Pesk and Lieutenant Chessa for days afterwards, unable to completely let go of his victory. When he did part ways with the girls' heads, he let them go in a ravine after supposedly engaging in oral sex with them, although this is not known for certain. The brutal, disturbing killings of Pesk and Luchessa was only enough to satisfy Ed for the summer. Soon, his beloved Polaroid pictures began to fade, and on September 14, 1972, Ed needed to murder again. He was searching for another pretty young girl to kill when he noticed 15-year-old Aiko Ku, who had decided to hitchhike after she missed her bus to the dance class. Ku, merely a child who had never had a reason to fear anyone before, was happy to have found a ride when Kemper's Ford Galaxy pulled over for her. Once again, Ed uses his impressive knowledge of the California roads to switch directions again and again, disorienting Ku, who was sitting in the front seat. Ku, though was all too familiar with her route to dance class and began to realize that there was something sinister happening. Trapped inside of his car, she began to scream and begged Ed to let her out of the car. To quiet her screams, Ed whipped out his 357 Magnum revolver and pressed it firmly against the young girl's ribs with his right hand while steering the car with his left. He remained like that for the rest of the drive, but amazingly managed to calm Ku's fears even while holding a gun to her. Ed convinced her that he had no intention of causing her harm, but that he was planning to take his own life and just needed someone to talk to. He parked once again in an isolated, wooded area where he was sure no no one could possibly hear Ku's cries. At this point, she had calmed down significantly and even trusted the 300-pound men. Her empathetic, loving personality drawn to helping him through his suicidal crisis. Ed left the car to gather his necessary weapons, but accidentally locked himself out, giving Ku an amazing chance to escape her fate. Ku, though unwilling to desert this sad, mentally ill man alone in the forest, unlocked the door for him. She succumbed to the same fate as the victims before her, choking the innocent child until she lost consciousness, before raping and killing her. He dragged her body parts into his car's trunk, stopped at a bar to chill out. In the bar's very parking lot at the end of the night of drinking, he opened his trunk and stared admiringly at Ku's corpse. Ed compared himself to a fisherman taking pride in that evening's catch. A few quick months after Ku's murder, Ed, who had spent nearly his entire settlement in only a year, found himself penniless once again and forced to move back in with his mother. After a particularly nasty fight with Clarnell, 
Ed headed for Cabrillo College and hunt for some fresh flesh. On the night of January 7, 1973, Ed saw Cynthia Cindy Shaw walking along her quiet campus. Ed trapped her in his car and drove her to the woods where he didn't waste any time. He shot her fatally with a 22 caliber pistol before throwing her body in the trunk and driving her straight to his mother's house. Like Ed had once stored the remains of a chopped up cat in his bedroom closet at his mom's house, he stuffed the body of 18 year old Shaw in his closet and left it there overnight, waiting hungrily for his mother to leave for the work the next day, so he could have some alone time with his newest corpse. When Clarnell eventually did leave, Ed engaged in sex with Shaw's dead body before carefully removing the bullet that was lodged in the woman's skull. He then took her to his mother's bathtub, where he proceeded to decapitate and dismember Shaw. Like before, Kemper kept the head for days afterwards, regularly having oral sex with it. Ed later described his fascination with heads, explaining that the head is a bit of a trophy. You know, the head's where everything is at. The brain, eyes, mouth. That's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Ed interrupted himself, thinking, then added, well, that's not quite true. With a girl, there's a lot left in a girl's body without a head. When Ed finished with Shaw's head, it was time to bury it. This time though, Ed didn't drive deep into Santa Cruz Hills or to a ravine he could dump it. Instead, he buried the young woman's head right in his mother's back garden, facing the head towards her bedroom window because according to Ed, Clarnell always wanted people to look up to her. Living with his mother meant more fighting, more rage, more pain. It also meant less time between murders. Less than a month after killing Shaw, on February 5th, 1973, Ed stormed out of his house hungry for a feeling of power and control, went looking for his next prey. At this point, body parts of his other victims had been discovered, and the missing person count was on the rise in Northern California. Hitchhikers were warned not to accept rides from strangers. This was no matter to Ed, because his mother worked at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He had a bumper sticker of the school stuck proudly to his bumper. This sticker gained him all the trust that he needed to pick up new victims, who assumed Ed must be a student himself, or at the very least a staff member. Ed saw 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thorpe and her friend Alice Helen Liu looking for a ride on campus. Liu was hesitant to enter the strange man's car, paranoid after the countless stories she had heard of women who enter cars never to return. Thorpe, though, was far more trusting and entered the car on her own before convincing her friend it was safe to join her. Again, Kemper fatally shot the girls with his 22 caliber pistol. Once he was sure that they were dead, he wrapped their bodies and blankets and drove them back to his mom's house. There, he didn't wait to get to his favorite part, beheading both girls in his car in the driveway, carrying their headless bodies into the house for sex. He dismembered them and removed their bullets before dumping their remains on the side of the highways. Clearly, Ed was getting lazier. Two months later, on April 20th, 1973, confident in his abilities, completely lacking control over his urges, Ed would finally fulfill the fantasy he had been harvesting his whole life, the murder of his very own mother. Clarnell arrived home late one night from a party and woke her son up in the process. She crawled into her bed where she began to read out loud to herself from a book. Ed, 
angry at being awakened from a deep sleep, marched straight into her bedroom to confront her. According to Ed, upon noticing her son standing in her doorway, Clarnell remarked sarcastically, I suppose you're going to want to sit up and talk all night. Ed simply told her goodnight before waiting in another room, lurking quietly and listening for sleep. Once he knew that she was in a deep sleep, Ed crept into her bedroom with a claw hammer. He bludgeoned his mother to death and slit her throat, finally able to avenge years of abuse and belittlement. Still, it wasn't enough. Ed engaged in oral sex with his mother's decapitated head before placing it on a shelf and throwing darts at it. Ed said that he screamed at it for an hour, threw darts at it, and smashed her face in. Then, awash in anger and adrenaline, he chopped off her tongue and larynx and tossed them into the garbage disposal, listening as they were chopped into pieces by its blade. Afterward, Ed went to a bar for a drink to cool off. When he arrived home, he had an idea. He called up Clarnell's best friend, 59-year-old Sarah Sally Hallett, and invited her to join his mother for dinner and a movie. As soon as the middle-aged woman arrived, Ed strangled her to death. He believed that if he murdered Clarnell's best friend and had them disappear together, he could fabricate a story that the two friends leaving for a trip together and failing to ever return. In spite of this plan, though, Ed left a note to police reading approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday, no need for her to suffer any more at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. Ed left the house and drove straight 1,000 miles to Pueblo, Colorado, staying awake by taking caffeine pills. His car was loaded with three guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. Ed fully believed that he was the target of a manhunt, but he was disappointed when he failed to hear a single news story about his mother's murder on the radio. Craving credit for the power he had worked so hard to achieve over other human lives, Ed called police himself after he arrived in Pueblo. He confessed to the murder of his mother and Hallette, but astoundingly, the police did not believe him. Frustrated, Ed called them again, and this time, Time, admitted to every single one of his other murders. The police finally came to take him into custody, telling of his confession to the police. Ed remarked, the original purpose of the murders was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real emotional purpose. It was just a waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off. Psychiatrists and Kemper himself believe the act of murdering his mother finally gave Ed the cathartic release he had been searching for for so long. The murders of every one of his other victims beginning a decade before with his grandparents, were each ways for Ed to take his anger out on his mother. But because none of these victims were actually Clarnell, it wasn't until Clarnell's death and subsequent dismembering that Ed truly felt free of his mother's grip. Ed was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder at the beginning of May 1973, just 11 months after he slaughtered his first pair of hitchhikers in Berkeley. Because of Ed's confession and his detailed interviews, the defense pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Twice during his police custody, Kemper tried and failed to commit suicide. 
On October 23, 1973, Edge's trial began after a series of grueling interviews with the young killer. Psychiatrists determined that Ed Kemper was legally sane. In an interview where Kemper was given true serum, he even admitting to cooking and eating strips of flesh from the legs of his victims in a casserole. Psychiatrists deemed that in spite of Ed's deeply disturbing and heinous atrocities, Ed knew right from wrong and was attracted to the fame and notoriety of serial killers. On November 8, 1973, the jury only deliberated for five hours before declaring Kemper guilty and sane. Ed sought the death penalty eager to be tortured and killed, perhaps to fulfill the electric chair fantasy that he had as a child. Instead, he was given seven years to life for each count of murder and spent his sentence at the California Medical Facility. Like his first time in the facility for the criminally ill, Kemper is considered a model prisoner to this day. He will live the rest of his life behind bars, but still, he will find himself to be free, away from his mother, now and forevermore. Thanks for listening, and remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.